Well, we'll continue in this uh, marriage series, Better or Bitter. And uh, as I was picking up my, my Bible, I had a, a note on it from some woman sitting near me that says, Go easy on us. <laughs> I don't think Debbie Groover did that. Um, I don't think so. <laughs> um, as we look at this passage this morning and... Uh, the title of the message is Submission, Marriage's Dirty Word. Last week I shared with you that uh, in McDowell County last year, there were 276 marriages and 166 divorces. So for every two marriages, there was about one and a half, 1.6 divorces. So certainly that gives credence to the need for us to talk about married life and what it looks like and how it uh, should affect uh, you and me as Christians. I also realize every single Sunday in the room are those who have yet to come to Christ and uh, we're so glad you're here. Uh, we know that there are those of you who question the very truths of Scripture, and you sit here this morning, and I'm glad you're here, um, and uh, we love to engage with you and love for you to ask real questions about what we're talking about. Also must note that in the Greek, in Ephesians 5, Paul took 115 words uh, to describe to uh, men how to be married, but only 40 for women. I'm not sure what that says, except maybe that we men need a lot more help than women do. Maybe that's what that says. In uh, these few words, we discover this much-dreaded topic of submission, and it's hard in Western cultures because we're so individualistic. We, uh, we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We don't need many people around us, we think, and so definitely it's difficult. And there's another reason it is difficult, because if you read Genesis 3, when uh, God uh, pronounced the curse on the serpents and then on the serpent, and then he talked to Adam and Eve, there was this difficulty created by their sin of the woman and, and the man who all, up until that time had led, uh, the man had led wonderfully and perfectly, but now it would become difficult. So in this passage, we discover three reasons wives should submit uh, or can submit to their husbands. Three reasons you can submit, wives. Number one, you can submit to your husband because he is the head of the wife. Uh, that's how he is described here. Let's talk about the word submit. And incidentally, I never use notes when I preach, but I got to get this right. So I have notes up here with me this morning. Uh, the word submit is in the middle voice in the Greek, and what that means is that it is a passive term or it's voluntary. Submission does not mean against your own will. Submission is a voluntary act. It is not the breaking of the human will uh, that results in submission, which flies in the face of cultural submission as we see it around the world. Um, you go to uh, predominantly Muslim countries uh, or Muslim cultures and you will see uh, submission run amok. 
or spotty places in the south, right? Uh, you'll see submission run amok. You know, like the attitude, well, I'm a man around this house, and what I say goes, and when I say goes, and how I'm gone, you know, and somebody's supposed to understand the last part of that. And uh, so that's southern submission uh, we've got kind of figured out. But none of it is doormat theology. It isn't servile uh, a response to a dominating or domineering husband. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, submission in Scripture implies the need for order. It implies the need for order. Every organization, every organization, uh, and the family is an organization, though it's a small one, uh, requires leadership. If there is no leadership, the organization will fall apart, and the family is no different. There must be order. There must be leadership. And before you give submission a total bad rap, uh, we've got to go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. You'll see the verse on the screen. Uh, there are a, a lot of words I need to uh, tell you what they modify here. When all things are subjected to him, him being God, when all things are subjected to God, we may say the Father, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, God the Father. The word subjected here is the same word we use for submission, who put all things in subjection under him, that's Jesus, that God may be all in all. What does this verse say? When all things are subjected to God the Father, Jesus himself will be subjected or will submit himself to God the Father who put all things under Jesus in submission to him. Uh, simply put, Jesus submits. Jesus himself submits. As a matter of fact, if Jesus had never submitted to the Father, uh, we would not be saved today. If Jesus had never submitted to the Father, he had been born of a woman. He preexisted all of creation. It was Jesus who said, let there be, and there was. Jesus was the spoken word of creation, but he submitted to the Father. And if he never had and been born of Mary and grown up and died on a cross, resurrected three days later, you and I would not sit here today. Uh, this is the shock to some of you. The entire Christian faith is built on submission. Christ submitted to the Father and by his submission bought us, redeemed us. We serve a submitted Savior. Now, this verse makes it clear that Jesus is no less valuable than the Father. As a matter of fact, the very verse makes clear he's equal to him because it says all things are subjected to him, the Father, then the Son himself will be subjected to the Father, who will then put all things in subjection to whom? The Son. You say, so what is it? Submission does not imply then one person it's better than the other. It's just that one is different than. Jesus performed a different function than the Father did. We call this functional submission. And it happens all the time. 
as a teacher, you have a principal. And you functionally submit to your principal. It doesn't make your principal any better than you. No, you're just in different roles. As a parent, your children better functionally submit to you. If they don't, you're in trouble and they are too. And so they functionally submit to you. Does it make you any better than they are? No. Just different. You're in different roles. In a society without submission, anarchy would reign. Just this very week, we, we heard the news of the senseless death of, of Jason Crisp. Senseless. Makes absolutely no sense that he would be gunned down like that while serving the greater public, does it? It's horrible. He and his wife are members of my father's church. And the pain that that church is going through. And she has just been battling cancer on the end of a battle with cancer. Just to know what they are going through is horrible, isn't it? And we in this country appreciate law enforcement. We appreciate what they bring and we celebrate law enforcement and we're grateful for them. But I've been in countries where you can't do that mission trip. Some of you were with me in Senegal, Africa. We had to travel from the capital city of Senegal. We're in a bus traveling from the capital city of about a couple million people. And we've got a ride for about two and two and a half hours to, uh, to Chez, a city of about 400,000. Every 30, 40 miles on that ride, police would stop us to, quote, inspect the bus. Absolutely nothing wrong with our bus. And our driver, who was Senegalese, had bribe money, and he would pay them just so we could get to the next police stop where they would inspect the bus, and, and then we'd pay that guy with bribe money. It was building to the cost of our trip, believe it or not, bribe money for the police. When you've been there and you live here, you're so grateful for what we have, aren't you? Because there's order, we gladly submit to the authorities. But in Senegal, the authorities are corrupt, and so you don't want to submit to them. Now, certainly there's corruption in the states. There's no doubt about that. It's just not widespread as much as it is in other countries, some other countries. So we functionally submit all the time. You can submit to your husband because he is the head of the wife. Secondly, you can submit to your husband because Christ is the head of the church. We've got to see this word head in context. Let's go to Ephesians 1, verse 22. Ephesians 1, 22 is the first time the word head appears in Ephesians. And it says, And he, God, put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is Jesus' body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in that passage, we discover that Jesus is the head of the church and that God did that. God made Jesus the head of the church. So what does Jesus do in this passage as head of the church? If you go to the prior verse, you'll discover Jesus protects the church from the full effects of evil powers and dominions. Evil surrounds us. If we could see into the spirit realm, if we could see with eyes that were beyond physical, and we could see what is going on around us, we would discover that there is a colossal battle in which uh, God is engaged on our behalf. 
And this spiritual battle that he is fighting, we cannot see with naked eye. We cannot see what is going on. And just today, in ways you don't know, God has protected you. Jesus Christ has protected you. That's his promise. As the head of the church, he protects you from spiritual attack, from the full effect of it. Ultimately, by redeeming us, he he protects us from the full effects of Satan and his demons. We do not have to go to hell. We do not have to spend eternity apart from God uh, because Christ died for us and bridged the gap. He protects us. That is not the only function of Jesus as the head. We see the next reference in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 verse 15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, head, Jesus, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Jesus not only protects the body as the head, but he provides for the body as the head. Here we see the body's growth as a result of the providing work of Jesus Christ. What does he do Uh, for the local church, the local body of Christ? He'll bring folks here. You'll join this church. You'll give to the building campaign. You will will, uh, serve as a teacher. You will uh, serve as an usher. You'll serve on on the parking lot crew. You'll do all of these different things. And God, as a result of raising you up, builds up the body. Christ does that. He'll nudge your heart. He'll call people to preach. He'll call people uh, to sing. He'll call people to teach. He will uh, call small group leaders to sacrifice and lead a group. Why? Uh, He takes care of his body. That's what Jesus does. As the head, he protects the body from the full effects of demonic power. And he provides for the body so that the body is built up in every single need you ever have. Jesus meets, and many of those needs he meets through people sitting in this room right here today. He meets through a sermon. He meets through a song. He meets through the talents and the gifts of so many people. And so you can submit to your husbands because Christ is the head of the church. Why? Because every believer in this room, if you're a follower of Christ, you submit to him. Otherwise, you're not a follower of Christ. By virtue of being a follower means that you submit to Christ. Now, what does this mean then for husbands? Let me talk about husbands for a moment. I know I hammered you guys last week. All right, got that. Know that, heard about it. Um, no, I did. Father's Day's coming. I'll have, no, I'm just kidding. But um, let, me, let me talk about this for a moment. What this means, husbands, then you as godly men, as husbands, are to protect and provide. Jesus is our example as the head of the church means I as a husband am to protect my family against the full forces as much as I can uh, of evil. And I've got to provide. I've got to provide physically, emotionally, and spiritually for my family. It's my job. I can't get away from that. If I look at this, and this rolls right into chapter 5, and I see the word head. This is a good tip in Bible study. I see the word head in chapter 5. I need to go back in the same letter and to see how it's defined, and that adds to the definition. It helps me understand what it means in chapter 5. 
So my job is to protect and provide. Wives, let me talk to you. If you have a husband who seeks to do that, and you say, no, uh, no, I'll do my thing my way. But he's seeking to protect you and provide you. It's like walking out these doors today, and your husband has an umbrella. And that umbrella is his being the head of your, of your marriage. And you're saying, and he's saying, honey, I, I want to protect you, and I want to provide for you. And here's what you say. Uh uh-uh, uh, I don't want that. You push the umbrella away, you walk out into the rain, you will get wet. That umbrella of protection is provided. But if you, as a wife, insist on doing it your way, that umbrella of protection is gone. Now, church, this works this way for us too. If we decide to go off on our own and do our own deal and not operate under the protection and the provision of Jesus Christ, that's our call. We're on our own, and we better be ready for rainy days and a lightning strike every now and then. You say, well, Jerry, how do I do that? Practically, practically, how do wives... Push the umbrella away. Let's be intensely practical. One word to begin with. It's really two, but now it's one. Probably in the dictionary. Face book. So, oh, Jerry, are you going there? Yeah, I hammered the guys. I got to get something. All right, so just kidding. Facebook. Let me talk about it for a moment. Facebook in and of itself isn't bad. But if you women, the way women tend to, to leave a marriage is emotionally. Men tend to leave a marriage for physical reasons. See a woman attracted to her, and it's driven by the attraction. Women tend to leave a marriage for emotional reasons. Husband not given what he ought to give, and so a woman will leave that marriage for those reasons for the most part. If you're on Facebook, women, and your husband doesn't know who you're talking to, and, the, and you see all of the stuff and all of the good things on Facebook. You, you just see it all of that person because that's, Facebook is a farce, right? Do we all know that? All right. You say, say, Jerry, what do you mean? Well, it's all the wonderful pictures of, 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 of birthday parties and the great things of life. But I'm assuming that none of you in your argument that happened at your house trying to get ready for church this morning Facebooked it. All right. I'm just guessing you didn't go, oh, honey, smile now, you know. And, and put it on Facebook. I, I, I'm just assuming you didn't say, fought all morning, going to worship. <laughs> Status. It's just a guess. Facebook is all the glorious, wonderful, fun things. And if somebody looked at your Facebook stuff, for most people, they would assume you live a perfect, wonderful, glorious life. Because that's all you see. And you know what happens? Oh, look, look, look at the pictures of him with his wife. Look how they're smiling. Well, everybody smiles in pictures. I mean, come on, people. We've got to be smarter than this. But it often begins there. If you are unwilling for him to have passwords and to see everything you're seeing and to see every conversation you're having, 
You're pushing the umbrella away. You're opening your marriage to sudden and possible destruction. You ought to be able to do that. All right? So, Jerry, practically how? Determine when you're going to be on Facebook. Let him see everything, everything. Don't take Facebook to bed. Queen-size beds are hard to fit about 150 people in. This is kind of weird. And when you're in bed on Facebook and he's snoring over there, you're in bed with him and, and 150 other people. That's just weird. So just protect your bedroom from those things. Just do that. And let me speak to one more thing. You know I'm going here. Candy crush, right? <laughs> Megan Gooch just said, I read your lips. Oh, my. Caught you, Megan. All right, so she just said, oh, my. Candy crush. Nothing wrong with candy crush. Mostly played by women. Little game on your phone. Are you ready for this? Today in the United States, people will spend $650,000 on Candy Crush. $650,000 today on Candy Crush. Wow. The, the inventor of Candy Crush is making $231 million a year on Candy Crush. As a matter of fact, I read a story this week about a reporter, and she was hired, uh, she was uh, given the assignment of covering the game. She had never played it before, so she downloaded it on her phone, and while trying to do in the story, got addicted. Honestly, she got addicted, and the, you know how she knew she was addicted? She reported it, and it's like she's got her ledger. In the first week, she spent $127 on, like, buying things. I don't know, I, you know, however you do it. I tried to play it one time. It made no sense to me, so I just quit. It just didn't make sense. I love to crush some candy, Snickers between my teeth. I love that. I will spend money on that. And a Coke in a bottle, eight ounce, right beside it. That's legit lunch right there. But, but think about that. You say, so how should that work? Just guard your time. Just, just look at your time. If you say, oh, I don't play it much, just time yourself one day. Men, this is what I was talking about with video games with you last week. There are these things, and they kind of uh, they snake their way in, and they seem so small and insignificant, but then they take on a life of their own. And, and before you know it, the husband's going, gosh, you know, she loves some Candy Crush. And I wish she loved me like she loved some Candy Crush. You're like, what? A little game? Yeah, it could take that on. You can submit to your husband because Christ is the head of the church. But then there comes this very difficult question that I know some of you are thinking, and it's a legitimate question, and it is, what if my husband doesn't submit to Christ? How do I do this? If he's not a godly man. And I would say to you that every single week in this church, 
are women who come here whose husbands do not come with them. They stay at home. The wife comes alone. She sits here week in and week out. And through the years, I've had the greatest admiration and respect for you who do that. It's hard enough to get kids ready with two people, but you do it by yourself. Your kids wonder why he isn't coming. Your kids wonder why it matters to you and it doesn't to him. And and so you do this every week. You come into this place, and it's you and, and just you and your kids, and it's hard, and you hate that. And I just want to say as your pastor, I am so proud of you. Amen, church? We are so proud of you that you do this every single week. So here comes the question. Here comes the question. How do you submit to your husband when your husband doesn't submit to Christ? Because the command here isn't conditional. It doesn't say submit to your husband because he submits to Christ. Or as he submits to Christ. It doesn't say that. How do you do it? Here's how. You could submit to him because you already submit to Christ. I would say just a simple, simple answer. A straightforward answer to a difficult question. If you're married to a man who doesn't submit to Christ, you submit to Christ. And Christ will show you how to live with that man. Okay? If you're married to a man who doesn't submit to Christ, you submit to Christ, and Christ will show you how to live with that man. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 7. And let's go there. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So the gospel was spreading through Corinth and people were coming to faith in Christ and there were husbands who came to faith and their wives didn't. And wives who came to faith and their husbands didn't. And he says, uh, to the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. And people have stumbled over this for years because, it, because they say, wow, if I'm an unbeliever or if I'm a believer and my wife is an unbeliever, then I make her holy. How do I make her holy? And they assume salvation, and it isn't that at all because Paul is a smart guy. He would have used the word saved. He uses that word later. Uh, he would have used it here. What does it mean to make holy? Here's what it means. It means that if you as a husband have an unbelieving wife, or if you as a wife have an unbelieving husband, the way that he is made holy is because he has got somebody in his corner who is constantly praying for him. And if he were married to an unbelieving wife, there is no way, absolutely no way, that she'd be praying for him. 
And so the holiness, it simply means to be set apart, the word. This, this husband of the unbelieving wife is set apart before God in a way that could ultimately bring him to faith in Christ. This morning, in both services, I've watched people come in. And between the two services, I've seen six husbands who weren't here two years ago. Wives came for many, many years. Many years, and I watched the wives come in, and I saw the burden on your face, and you sit here today, and your husbands are with you today because you faithfully lived it, walked it, prayed it, lived it, walked it, prayed it, day in and day out. And often you were made fun of and belittled for your faith. But notice what happens. The unbelieving husband is made holy. The unbelieving wife is made holy. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. What does that mean? It means they're set apart too. At least one of the two is praying for, sharing with, living in front of the faith, in front of the kids. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Let me mention that. I have through the years counseled on more than one occasion a wife or a husband who is in an abusive situation where the partner is an unbeliever. There is no place in Scripture that says you should submit yourself to physical abuse. That completely violates God's design of who you are completely violates. And while we have a tendency to assume that's only male to female, I've counseled on both sides of it. Male to female and female to male, physical abuse. Should you automatically leave? No. I've never seen somebody automatically leave. Should you stay and continue to be abused? No. But leaving the home and leaving the marriage are two different things. It could be that he or she could come to their senses. I've seen it happen. And I've seen true repentance. But Paul says here, if it doesn't, the wife is free. The husband is free if the unbelieving spouse separates themselves from the believing spouse. But I love the last part, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, can, can you save anybody? No. No. As a matter of fact, Chesney was telling me this funny story before church today. Her little boy, they were riding along last night, and he asked her about a name, and she said, well, that's another name for God. And and she just went through a list of names for God. And she got to the end of the list, and he said, and Jerry. <laughs> no. All right? <clears throat> just ask Wendy. She'll tell you straight up. If I'm God, we're all hurting. So, uh, no. No, I can't save anybody. Neither can you. But God certainly uses us in the salvation of other people. 
He uses us to show Christ, share Christ, live Christ in front of other people. Tony Evans, who's the, uh, the black pastor in Dallas, Texas, been to his church. Fantastic church. Uh, Dr. Evans tells the story. He grew up in a home without a believing dad and without a believing mother. And then his dad came to Christ. But his mother did not. And Tony Evans says that his dad came to Christ, mom did not come to Christ, and his dad paid for it. His mom was angry, she was bitter, she did not like the newfound faith of Tony's dad. And Tony was old enough to witness this, and he said on more than one occasion, his his, uh, dad would take it. Verbal, verbal harassment from his mom over, over his faith that she would go after him hard, sometimes in the kitchen, in front of all the kids. And he said, this went on for quite some time. And I watched my dad, and finally, or every time, he would slip up the steps into their bedroom, close the door, and he would get, he'd be alone, and he'd come then down the steps, and he'd be fine. He said, I saw this again and again and again. Watch dad, mom come after dad, dad slip up the steps, and then dad would come out and he'd be fine. He said, till one day, it happened in the kitchen. She went after him hard. He said, the look on dad's face made it clear it was killing him. He turned out, walked up the steps, went into his bedroom, closed the door. He said, a few minutes later, Mom abruptly left the kitchen, went up those steps into the bedroom, opened the door into the bedroom, only to discover his dad on his knees saying, God, you have saved me and will you save my family? And she said, she looked at him and she said, okay, I cannot do this anymore. I have been mean to you. I have derided you. I have cut you down. I have said all of these things, and all you do is leave and come up the steps and pray. She said, who is this God? I have to know him. And in that bedroom, Tony Evans' father led his own wife, Tony's mom, to Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 7 seen that happen here, not every time, sadly. I've seen it happen time and again, time and again. You say, Jerry, what does this look like for me? Uh, Let me just give you three very practical ways to live out godly submission. Number one, refuse to criticize your husband publicly. I would say hyphen disagree privately. Refuse to criticize your husband publicly. Disagree privately. Wendy and I have been married for almost 14 years. I have made plenty of mistakes. There's no doubt about that. But I will tell you this, in those 14 years, not once, not once, has she sought to out me, to embarrass me, to display my weaknesses in front of other people. 
And I told her in the early service, I so respect that and appreciate that. Emerson Egrich, great book on marriage called Love and Respect. In that book, he quotes a secular study done by a research university in which they asked men, if you could have one of two things, either be loved or respected, which would you choose? You can't have both. You can either get love from your wife or respect from your wife. 86% of the men said, give me respect. That song, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, right? We sing that? It was written by a man, just saying. Okay, number two, refuse to belittle your husband to your children. Refuse to belittle your husband to your children. If you want to raise rebellious children, then belittle their father in front of them. You will raise rebellious children. Refuse to do that. If you two have a problem, don't go after each other in front of the kids. Go into the bedroom, duke it out. Do whatever you got to do to solve. Number three, don't trade your husband for Facebook or Candy Crush, all right? You just got to work through the digital world we live in and figure out where is its proper place in my home, in my life. One family shared, one, one, one dad shared in my Bible fellowship group this morning, we've been talking about fasting, that their family takes one full day a week completely away from technology. It's a great idea. You just got to work that out. It's time for us to go. We're not going to do an invitation uh, today like a coming forward kind of thing. Uh, I'm sure we'll do that next week. I've given you some things to think about. This is all podcasted. You can go listen to last week's. If you missed it, and wives, if you're here today and your husband wasn't here last week, make him listen to it submissively. But seriously, talk about these things. Make necessary changes. Trust God's power to enable you to do that.